can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Lord willing, today we will be covering verses 8 through 15. 8 through 15. The title of this sermon is Experiencing the Holy Spirit. Experiencing the Holy Spirit. You'll remember last week we were focusing on this promise, this advantage that we have as Christians, this side of Pentecost, we have an advantage in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. And that's what we were focusing on last week. Well, this week we're going to look at, well, what does our experience of this promised comforter, this helper, what does that allow for us? How are we to relate with him And what is the context of our relationship to Him? And so at this time, if you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word and we'll read these verses together. John 16, beginning in verse 8. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thank you. May be seated. Being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me once again in prayer. Heavenly Father. Oh God, I thank You for the opportunity that You've given us now to open Your Word, to look into it, to draw from it those things which You've given to us. God, I ask that the Holy Spirit would declare these things to us today, that He would make them known, that there would be more than just a hearing in the mind, but that our souls would be taken up with this truth. Oh God, we are dependent upon You in every way. I am. Oh God, I ask that You would guard me from error. Oh Father, shut my mouth from speaking that which is untrue. But I do pray for real and true and lasting power to proclaim truth in such a way to bring genuine conviction even as Your Word is telling us. Father, I ask that You would do this For your own glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we'll begin looking at verse 8 in a moment. But before that, just a preliminary question for you. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What does He do? What is He supposed to do? What has He promised to do? There's a lot of people today that in the name of the Holy Spirit, they do a lot of different things. Some people, you ask them, what is the Holy Spirit's ministry in your church? And they'll tell you of all kinds of fantastic, external, miraculous, supernatural goings on. 
I, I know I may have shared this with you before, but the church building that uh, we met in back in the church I was at in Ada, when we first moved in there, there was a patch in the wall in the auditorium where a woman of a Pentecostal nature took off running and ran headfirst into the wall one day, supposedly in the Holy Spirit. I want to know, what is it that we're promised? What's the nature of the Holy Spirit's work? Now, I don't want to make light of the reality that the Holy Spirit has done many mighty external works throughout the history of the church. Starting in Acts, and there's a lot of reports throughout during periods of revival that He did supernatural and miraculous things. Who are we to question those things? We know that the Holy Spirit's done those things. How do we know He isn't still doing those things today? I mentioned already last week we were looking at how this great benefit and advantage of being a Christian this side of Pentecost is that we're promised universal communion with God by the Holy Spirit. We can know the presence of God anywhere we are at all times by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so I ask today, what is this communion with God supposed to look like practically? Well, as we evaluate those people that will say, this is the Holy Spirit doing something in the context of our gathering, I'm going to suggest that there are four words that are given to us in our text today. And these are words that we want to know are these words being used in the context of the Holy Spirit's supposed work. Here are these words we'll look at today. Convict. Convict. That's the first thing. We're going to focus a lot on the idea of conviction today. The second one is sin. The third one, righteousness. And the fourth one, judgment. You'll find those straight out of our text today we're in. And I'm going to suggest that if there's a ministry or a person that is not using these words and they tell you the Holy Spirit's involved in what they're doing, they're not telling the truth. If the Holy Spirit is acting, if He is acting upon a ministry and in an empowering ministry, it's going to include these four things. And so with all of that, let us begin to look into our text and see what it means to experience the Holy Spirit of God. And not just that we come to an understanding of it, but that we would actually be experiencing His convicting work in us today as we do so. John 16 and verse 8 says, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, there's a context that this comes in, okay? It would be very easy for us to read this verse and think this is only talking about what the Holy Spirit's going to do to the lost world. That's not the context primarily that Jesus is talking about. It's related to the context, but He's been telling His own disciples, you have this advantage of the Holy Spirit. It's for your advantage that the Holy Spirit's coming. And that is going to include what He does to other people in the world But it starts with His own disciples. Here's what I'm saying. There are two primary reasons that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. The first we've been told about is the comfort that these disciples will experience and the presence of Christ they're going to experience by the Spirit. The second is the effectual impact that the disciples are going to have in their Gospel proclamation. First is that they're going to know the presence of Christ as the Spirit is communing with them. Jesus has said, I will come to you. And He's going to come to them in the context and in the the, the way He's going to come to them is by the Spirit. And the second is that He's going to empower their message to the world. 
Those are the two things that are being told to us in our context. And in light of that expressed purpose, it is right for us to understand this verse 8 to be applied both to the disciples as well as they, the people they would preach to. What does that mean for us? Today, here and now, when we're reading this, and when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. This means that the truths we're going to look at today are supposed to be applied to Christians as they grow in their knowledge of God, as they grow in, their, in the image of Christ that they're being sanctified into, as well as non-believers that come under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. So here's my question. Which one are you? Which one of these two people are you? Are you the Christian who needs to be convicted by the Holy Spirit and grow in your knowledge of Christ and in the image of Christ? Or are you the non-believer, the unconverted person who has never been in this state of being convicted by the Holy Spirit's power? You see, all of our religious observances can never really bring to us what we need that this Spirit brings. This true conviction and conversion. And to the Christian, we are all in desperate need of the Holy Spirit to continue molding us in the image of Christ. How is it that God the Spirit is going to convict us of sin? How is it that the Spirit of God is going to convict us of righteousness and of judgment? And what is His purpose in doing so? Those are the things I want to look at with you today in light of this verse. We see in verse 8, when He comes, He will convict the world. What does this word convict mean? If we go wrong at this point, we're going to miss it all. We're not going to have a right understanding of these words if we miss the meaning of the word convict. Many of us are probably inclined to think of this word as you might hear it in a courtroom, right Kevin? Someone's been convicted of a crime. We think That's the word we think of. A criminal who has been... They've been tried, they've been convicted, and they've been proven guilty and sentenced. A condemned criminal. It is extremely important that we not replace the word convict here with the word condemn. That's not what he means. And that's what we're likely to think about. A lot of people, I've heard Christians talk about how when they're convicted, they come under conviction, they say, well, I was just feeling so condemned at that moment. It is not the ministry of the Holy Spirit to condemn you. Never. And I hope to demonstrate that to you as we work through our text today. He will convict the world, it says. Now here's the important thing. We go wrong as Christians and we cause ourselves unnecessary grief when you view yourself as being condemned. He does not do that. To the Christian first, Romans 8 verse 1, what does it say? There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation left for you if you're in Christ. The Holy Spirit's not making you feel condemned. And neither does the Holy Spirit condemn the lost as He draws them to Christ. This may come as a surprise to you. Do you believe it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to cause the lost person to feel condemned? To condemn them by His work? John 3 and verse 17 says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now here's what I want to show you. In our text here in John 16, verse 13 tells us something very interesting. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak. 
and will declare to you the things that are to come. Here's my point. Jesus says He did not come to condemn the world. That's not the message He was proclaiming. The Spirit is the one He's sending in His name with His authority to proclaim the same message. The Spirit of God is not going to be contrasted in what He says with the Son. He has the same thing to say. That's what we're seeing. It's not to condemn, but to convict. And I ask, okay, it's not being condemned. What then does it mean to convict? Turn with me in your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We've got a very good picture of what it looks like to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. To come under this conviction that is so needful. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Begin reading with me at verse 8. Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. What's Paul saying? That there is a grief that leads to death. That the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not just to make you feel kind of bad about what you've done. But there, it's going to produce in you a godly grief. Where you actually have a sense in your soul that what I've done was against God. It's to convince you. That's the word the King James uses and aptly so. See, the word convict in our text, it's somewhere between the idea of convict and convince. It's to take the truth concerning your sin and to make you aware of it, to convince you. Not only to say, yes, I'm a sinner, but you actually agree with the fact that what you've done is bad. You're actually burdened by it. There's a grief involved. A Godward grief. And it leads to repentance and salvation. The convicting work the Holy Spirit does that Jesus is promising is not only going to make you upset that you got caught. It's not only going to bother you that there are consequences, but you're actually grieved that you offended God. Now, what are the truths that Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit will convict and convince us of? He says concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I love this section of Scripture because I'm an expositor. I love taking the Scripture and opening it up and explaining what every aspect of the verse means. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He makes a statement and then He exposits the statement for us. So let's look at Jesus' exposition of verse 8. He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Verse 9, the first thing He deals with. What is it going to look like that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin? He says, because they do not believe in me 
The first truth that we're meant to be convinced of and convicted of has to do with sin. But notice the personal nature of this. It's not just like the Holy Spirit makes you realize this thing you've done is bad. You've broken a rule or a law. That's not all that He does. You see, sin does not exist in a vacuum. If you have a sin problem, it's because you have a problem with the one who gave the rules. Your problem isn't with the list of rules. See, our problem is that we're rebels. We sin because we're rebels. He says he's going to convict the world of sin because they don't believe in me. There is a direct relationship between our sin and the one against whom we have sinned. And you can take any person in the world who does something bad and get them to agree with you. Hey, that was a bad thing. But do they see what they've done is an offense against God? That what you've done is against God himself. They do not believe in me. And also contained in this, we see that every sin that is committed is committed because of a lack of faith in Jesus Christ. We know the scripture teaches that anything done apart from faith is sin. But the sin he's convicting of is applied personally. Look with me for a moment at one way this is illustrated. Look back at John chapter 4. We see how sin, sin is personal, and it must be personally understood. In this very way. Look at John chapter 4. A clear illustration of this. You recall there's this Samaritan woman at this well. Jesus is talking to her. And at one point in the conversation, she asks him to give this living water he's talking about. And Jesus says to her, starting in verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, pause for a moment. What's Jesus doing here with this woman? He's highlighting her sin, isn't He? He's just told her, you're an adulterous woman. You're a sinful woman. That's what He said to her. Is there any change in her? Is there any godly conviction? Is there any godly grief for her sin? Well, let's see what she says. The woman said to Him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Doesn't sound very convicted to me. She says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And then the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when He comes, He'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Now here's the point in this. Jesus confronts her sin to her face about her adulterous life. And there's no conviction in the heart. The moment that Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am He, the very next thing you see this woman doing is going to tell everybody about it. She's completely changed by this revelation. And here's my point. That before that, before Jesus reveals Himself to her, her sin is kind of abstract. Yeah, that's true of me. Let's argue about theology. Let's argue about what the right place to worship is. And then she sees this one who's talking to me. Here's the one I've sinned against. Here's God, the Messiah in front of me. 
All of a sudden, that conviction takes root in her soul. She's grieved. And she goes telling them about a man who told her all she ever did. All of a sudden, the conviction comes home to her. It's personal. It's personally applied. And the point at which we're truly and personally convicted of sin is when we see that our sin is against a person. That's when it becomes personal to us. Acts 2.36, this is Peter's understanding as well. He's been preaching to the people on the day of Pentecost. And here's the message that cut them to the heart. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see the personal nature of this. You killed Him. You crucified Him. That's what Peter's saying. He's not just speaking about sin in some generic term. He's not just saying you guys are kind of bad and need help. He's saying specifically your sin, you crucified Jesus. And He's Lord and Christ of all. He's risen from the dead. You see, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is never to condemn us. But the truth of our sin, which He convicts us of, shows us what that we are condemned already without Christ. That's the testimony of John 3. Jesus says He didn't come to condemn the world, but the world was already condemned. And you and I, we are in this condemned position. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to you saying condemned, condemned, condemned. He says, sinner. And in light of your knowledge of your sin, you see that your condemnation would be just. But it drives you and compels you towards a way of escape that's been made known to you in Jesus Christ. He convicts the world of sin and the sin of not believing in Christ. And if you are a Christian, the truth of your sin, which this same spirit, the same comforter stirs up in you an awareness of sin, he reminds you that you would have been condemned apart from Christ, that you would have deserved that condemnation, but you don't because of Jesus. That's the first ministry of the Holy Spirit, convicting of sin. The second thing we see, verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Here's the second truth. First first truth, the Holy Spirit convinces you that you're a sinner. And not only that you're a sinner, but that you're sinning against a person. Your Creator, Almighty God. The second truth, concerning righteousness. Because I go to the Father. Here, we're meant to be convicted and convinced of righteousness. And again, just like with the sin, we're not only meant to avoid sin, but produce positive righteousness. We see that this righteousness doesn't exist in a vacuum either, does it? It's not like God has, okay, here's my list of rules. If you don't do it, that's bad. If you do it, that's good. It's deeper than that. It's more than that. This standard of true righteousness is personal. He's going to convict the world of righteousness. Why? What for? Because Jesus is going to the Father and they're not going to see Him. We don't see the standard of righteousness that Jesus manifested any longer in the flesh. We need the Spirit to show us what true righteousness is. Now to be clear, there was a standard of righteousness revealed in the law of God. There is a standard of goodness and morality in God's rules. And yet, the standard was never meant to only be seen in a list of rules. It was meant to be understood in the context of a personal character and a holy life. God's rules are a reflection of God Himself. 
And that's what we're meant to see. Christ Himself was the embodiment of true righteousness. And He's no longer here. The Spirit shows us what real righteousness looks like. No man had ever demonstrated the righteousness of God which is found in the law. And Jesus did. Let me just show you this from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You can turn there with me or take it down. Here's this explanation of the difference between the righteousness of God that's manifest in His law and the glory and righteousness of God seen in His Son. That which is needed, that which is greater even. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 4. Fascinating, glorious passage of Scripture. Pay attention to this in light of this righteousness. The Holy Spirit's going to convict of righteousness. This is why. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory, that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, listen to that, condemnation, there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For for to this day, even when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. There is so much in that passage, depth of significance in that section of Scripture, more than I have even a a small amount of time to deal with here today. Here's the point in that language. There was a glory in the law. There was a glory in, in the law that Moses was given that he delivered to the people. And they saw this glory tangibly so. And yet it was fading away. And there's a greater glory, a greater righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ. That's where this is going. That letter, that law, it kills, it condemns. The ministry of the Spirit gives life. That's what we're seeing. This Holy Spirit gives life concerning true righteousness. He doesn't point you to a dead letter that's going to kill you. He lifts your gaze to the righteousness of Christ. And as you gaze upon Christ, you're changed into that same image. From one degree of glory to the next. He convicts the world of true righteousness. Righteousness which is able to then change a person truly. Not a law that's going to kill, kill, kill. But a person 
an embodiment of that. That's what we're seeing in this. The Holy Spirit convinces us and convinces us or convicts us of the glory and righteousness of God in the face of His Son. The third thing we see concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, so the Holy Spirit convinces and convicts us of sin, that it's sin against God. Then He convinces us of this righteous standard that is perfected in Christ. And as we gaze upon Christ, we're changed into that same image. And the third thing is concerning judgment. We're convicted and convinced concerning judgment. And once again, as with the first two, we see that this is to be understood personally. Now, some people have suggested that God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Have you heard that? Well, God hates the sin, but he really loves the sinner. And I suppose that's true for Christians. But the scriptures say that God doesn't only cast sin into hell, but sinners into hell. And we see this judgment of God is demonstrated here to be individualistic. That there is some truth. There is truth to the fact that God is going to judge. You see, God is shown in this context. He's talking about judging of the devil, judging of Satan. But here's the point. The judgment of God, the Holy Spirit shows us is this, that it is not an abstract theory. That it's not just something out there. We're not just saying, yes, God's going to judge someday, but never actually believing that it's going to happen. There is a personal and an individual outcome. And Jesus uses the example of Satan. Why does he do that? Well, he says that he has been judged. And think on this. You remember what I said about sin? We sin because we're rebels. Our sin is is the result of the fact that we're at enmity with God, rebelling against God. Satan is the first rebel. Satan was the first rebel in his opposition to God. And he's been judged and set forth as the first rebel against God. And every other rebel will be likewise judged if they're not found in Christ. That includes you. The Holy Spirit tells you the reality of God's coming judgment is real. And it's been demonstrated already in the cross of Christ. Now this truth is meant to remind us of God's grace toward us, but also to encourage us. Remember, this all coming in the context of Jesus saying, I'm going to send you out as witnesses in my name to a world that hates you. This Spirit's going to comfort you as you go, but also effectually save those that you preach to, who hate you now until the Spirit brings this truth to them. Now here's this context. As this conviction concerning this judgment is made plain and made clear to us. It reminds us of the truth that God is not and will not judge us. But it also encourages us that any opposition from the devil or his servants in the world is going to come to an end. It's going to be destroyed. God is going to vindicate his people. Romans 12 verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So here's our three applications. Do you want to experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life here and now? This is what it's going to look like. He's going to bring a real and abiding awareness to your soul of sin and the consequences of sin and the standard of God's perfect righteousness and the judgment that's going to come against sin. And all of these things are going to be understood personally. 
intimately and in the light of Jesus Christ. Notice Jesus' place in these things. He says concerning sin because they don't believe in Jesus. He says concerning righteousness because they don't see Jesus. He's not there to be seen anymore. Who is the one who publicly judged the ruler of this world? Who is the one who set him forth, placarded his judgment in front of all? He nailed the sin to his cross and made an open shame of the devil. That's Jesus. All three of these. The Holy Spirit is seen to be convicting the world ultimately of Jesus. That's what he's doing. And in light of those things, we can have confidence, confidence in God. And in verse 12, we go on to read this. John 16 and verse 12. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Praise the Lord. There are many glorious truths which we could not bear to know all at once. If you knew everything that you know as a Christian now, when you were first converted, they would have destroyed you probably. Huh? The weight of all of that, I can remember even, I think it was Jim Reynolds, I remember I've heard him say a number of times that he got to a point when he was first converted where he had to pray, Lord, stop, it's just too much. I can't take it all in. And that's the truth. We cannot bear everything all at once. God's grace toward us is so great that He doesn't bury us under it that way, but He gradually strengthens us in order to be able to bear it. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. That should come as a reminder to us. Shouldn't we be gracious towards people whose understanding is not as far along as our own? When you meet someone who doesn't have the same knowledge of truth or of theology as you, our inclination is, well, why not? It's so plain. It's right here in the Bible. Why don't they believe that? Well, there was a time when you did. There was a time you had to grow and develop your understanding you couldn't bear it at one point either for us to be gracious. And yet it's not an excuse to remain ignorant of truth. God is gracious in not giving us more than we can bear at times. But then also he says, I have more things to say to you. I've got more to tell you, just not yet. And so it's not I'm going to stay ignorant. I'm going to not pursue an understanding of the truth because I can't bear it. It is to realize there is more to come. We should not be content to know less when there is further to be known promised here. Verse 13. Here's the way that we're going to come to know these more things. These many things that have yet to be understood yet. He says in verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. Now I believe the primary fulfillment of this verse is in the pending of Scripture. That the Holy Spirit brought the truth to those who would write the Scriptures down. And yet there is a further application to us as well. We're promised this same Spirit, this same understanding of truth coming through the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ, interestingly here, he identifies the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. This ought to immediately inform us that His work is going to be intimately related to revealing what is true. Why do I say that? 
You could even argue that all of the external and supernatural works the Holy Spirit has ever done have been about vindicating the truth that was being proclaimed. Not ultimately about the materialistic sign. We praise God for those kinds of things, and yet it's about the truth that's going forth. And I'm asking, do we desire an experience of the Holy Spirit which is going to ground us in the truth of God's Word? Do you see that? The Spirit of truth comes. He's going to guide you into all the truth. What's the truth He's going to guide you into? He's not going to speak His own authority, but whatever He hears, He's going to speak. He's going to be declaring to us things that He's hearing. Who is the Holy Spirit hearing things from? Christ, the Father. It's God's Word. That's what He's proclaiming. He's making the Word known. That's the emphasis of the Spirit here in our text. So I ask, do we have a desire for the Holy Spirit of God? Furthermore, I'll tell you this. You cannot rightly understand this truth of this book in your soul apart from the Spirit's work. You cannot. I believe there's a doctrine that's called the perspicuity of Scripture, which basically means the Scriptures are plain in their meaning. It means you don't have to be a rocket surgeon to know what the Bible means. And in one sense, that's very true. God is not withholding truth in the Scriptures. It's not riddles and confusion. But apart from this lens, this empowering of the Spirit of truth, it's not going to ever reach your soul. The significance of Christ is not going to come home to you apart from the ministry of the Spirit. He brings these things to us. And here's my argument. He's the Spirit of truth in any suggestion of the Spirit's work that does not focus on lifting up God's Word is faulty at best and downright deceptive at worst. If someone says the Holy Spirit is doing this in our church or in our ministry, if the Word's not being lifted up regularly, constantly, if the Word's not being lifted up, they're not telling the truth. And if the Holy Spirit is involved, it's working against them if they're not holding up the Word of God. That's what we're seeing here. He's declaring these things. To what end, though? The primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to declare God's Word and to convince His listeners as He does so. His ministry to you now is not just that you leave this place thinking, yeah, those were some nice thoughts, but that you leave convinced in your soul God was speaking to me as that Word went forth. That's His ministry. And I ask, to what end? Verse 14 tells us, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. We can rightly understand this section of the Scriptures in this way. The Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying, when He comes, when the Helper comes, this is what He's going to do. We could summarize it just like this. He's going to convict the world of Jesus Christ. He's going to convince the world of Jesus Christ. He's going to glorify Jesus Christ. That's His purpose. That's ultimately all that the Spirit's doing is for the glory of Jesus Christ. If you can't show me, if you tell me that the Holy Spirit's doing something in your life and it's disconnected from the glory of Jesus, I don't want to hear it. How is He glorifying the Son? How is He glorifying the Father? That's His ministry. That's His work. Oh, I am very charismatic. If you mean I understand that God moves by His Spirit in mighty ways. That's what I mean by that. But those mighty ways are always going to be glorifying Jesus. Lifting up Jesus. Verse 15 continues the same thought. He's going to take what is mine and declare it to you. Verse 15 says, 
All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. In this last verse, we're reminded that the Holy Spirit does not declare a generic Jesus. He doesn't. He doesn't just set forth somebody called Jesus and tell you you should like or love Him even. He doesn't just set forth any old Jesus. He, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, all the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said He will take what is mine and declare it to you. There's specifics involved in, him, in this. There's a specific message Jesus says He has for His people. What we see here is certainty. Certainty. He says, first, He will glorify me for He will take what is mine. There's a taking hold of something and declaring it. That's what the Spirit seemed to do here. And then verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said He will take what is mine and declare it to you. What we're hearing is He will do it. The Holy Spirit's work is effectual and certain. And He will declare the glorious truth of Jesus Christ as He's being revealed here to every single person for whom Christ died. The Holy Spirit will not fail in this endeavor. He is not impotent. He is not weak. He is mighty to save all those He intends to save. And He's going to go forth powerfully doing so. He's going to take what is Christ and declare it boldly, certainly. And the last thing as I move towards a close, is to ask you, what do you suppose He's going to tell them? What is He going to tell you? What has the Holy Spirit told you concerning the Word of Christ? What has the ministry of how has the ministry of this third person of the Trinity met with you? First, as you were lost and came to faith in Christ, and then now as a Christian, how has the Spirit continued at work in you concerning Jesus? Ministry of the Holy Spirit is to communicate the work and the words of Jesus Christ. Did we see that in this section of John 16? What is it? How are we to experience the Holy Spirit? He's going to, he's going to bring conviction. Sin's going to be, be seen as personal against God. Righteousness is going to be seen in Jesus Christ. Judgment is going to be seen as real and already demonstrated in the cross. And all of these things to the glory of Christ. Well, what did Jesus do? What realities does the Holy Spirit take and set before you here and now? He tells you of the person of Jesus. You see the character of Christ revealed in the Word. As the Word goes forth, you're seeing Jesus in it. You're seeing His person, His character. You're seeing the reason He came into the world. His perfect life. You see Jesus and the Spirit tells you that Jesus was not a sinner. He could not have sinned. Look at Him there. He's righteous. And you see Jesus by the Spirit's ministry to your soul going to the cross to die. And remember, there's this conviction of sin. And you see, as He died, He was where I should have been. I should have been dying even as He died. And you see this perfect righteousness of His, His death, the Spirit convinces you of this Jesus in His burial. That He really actually died. He wasn't pretending. And then He rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father. And now He's interceding for you. The Spirit convinces you in your soul. These things are so. So if anybody comes to me and says, those things aren't true of Jesus. I say, yes, they are. The Spirit has shown my soul through the Word. These things are true. He's convinced me of them. And I hold fast to them. And I know 
This Jesus, by the Spirit, is convincing me this Jesus is coming again. He's going to come again riding the clouds of heaven. Coming to make an end to all sin and all evil in the world and call us home to Himself. These things we're convinced of by the Holy Spirit's ministry. And I can't convince you of them. I'm doing my best. I'm trying with everything in me. But He must do it. And He must convince you to come to Christ and say, God, forgive me a sinner. This Spirit must do that to you. And He's able to do that to you. Do you hear His voice telling you, drawing you this way today, saying, come to Christ. See Jesus. I'll tell you this. If the Holy Spirit convinces and convicts you of these eternal truths, you'll not feel condemned. You'll see any condemnation that I deserve was upon Jesus. The wrath that I deserve was on Him. You're not going to feel condemned, but you'll have fullness of joy in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Any feeling of condemnation you feel as a Christian is an attack against the work Jesus already accomplished. Any thought that suggests I can be separated from the love of God is an attack against Jesus. Last thought, if you just glance at the front of the bulletin, I love loved this quote, Samuel Rutherford. If I can find my bulletin, that is. He says, In our fluctuations of feeling, it is well to remember that Jesus admits no change in his affections. Your heart is not the compass Jesus sailed by. Jesus, his love for you is not dependent on how you feel. His compass is his own heart, his own understanding of truth, His own cross, His own substitution, His love for the Father. These are the things that drive Him and they're not going to change. He's going to go on loving you. And the experience that the Holy Spirit brings to us is to be convinced these things are so. That we would know Him in this way. And the source of our communion as we're going to observe here in a moment together is that we all have come to share in and be convinced of these same eternal realities, these glories we come to know. And we love one another. We love others who are convinced of the same thing. If you have not come to Christ today, I bid you to come to Him. Look to Him and be saved. Fly to Jesus. Be convinced of these truths. And if you're a Christian, be reminded and convinced again and again and again of what your God has done for you in Christ. The salvation He's given you. The promised comforter. Isn't that interesting? If you're a Christian and you feel convicted over sin, that's supposed to comfort you. You're supposed to feel comforted by the fact that you remember your sin. That you're made aware of your sin. What a comfort that God disciplines us and loves us in that way. And so with those things, I will go ahead now and close the service in a word of prayer. If you'll bow with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the promised Spirit who gives us grace and understanding and empowers us to believe those things which are true. But God, You know, even in my own heart and mind, Felt even at points scattered today, and yet your word will prevail, and the Spirit is able to overcome all of these things. God, I pray you give us a real 
sense of our unity to Christ and our unity with one another as we prepare together around this table. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.